0: Turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter two. We're going to read from verse twelve to the end of the chapter. Verse twelve. This is just following the miracle at Cana of the turning of water into wine. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He and his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge of cords and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who were selling the doves, he says, "'Take these things away.' Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple. Will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so helpless and weak apart from your Holy Spirit. We pray that this morning you would help us to see in a fresh way Jesus Christ, We've heard so much about Jesus, we've thought so much about him, and yet today, this morning, we find ourselves again in need of a fresh insight and sight and revelation of him. Father, I pray that you would give that to us as we can consider this powerful and amazing passage. Do it work in my heart and in each person's heart here this morning, I pray. Through the preaching of your word, glorify your name and humble the pride of man. In Jesus' name, amen. A young doctor was just beginning his practice. It was his first day in his newly opened clinic. And so he's there in his newly opened clinic, first day on the job, crossing his fingers, hoping that someone would come in. And suddenly his secretary informs him, there's someone here to see you. And so the young doctor, wanting to look successful and busy, grabs the phone and pretends he's talking to someone on the phone, a patient, while this person walks into his office and he's he's talking and the guy patiently waits for him and finally he hangs up and he says, may I help you? And he says, I'm just here to hook up your phone. (laughs) First impressions are lasting impressions. Can you imagine what kind of an impression that would have given to that telephone operator? <laughs> Probably for the rest of his days, he thought, that doctor's crazy. <laughs> the word impression carries the idea of something being pressed into another thing and leaving its mark or an indentation in that thing. When we as people encounter events, events, objects, or other people, these things often will leave an impression upon us. They'll leave a mark upon us. So even after we separate from them, we still carry with us a feeling of what that encounter was like, right? A first impression. I got this feeling when I was with them. I got this sense when I was with them. And Even after they're gone, they leave that still with you. It's said that often first impressions can only be changed after... M- multiple further encounters in different contexts that can convince you that you were wrong in your impression of that person. And so first impressions are very important. I've entitled this message this morning first impression because the incident before us that we read is about a first impression. And not just any first impression, not just the first impression of meeting anybody, but the in first but the first impression of meeting Jesus Christ. This is the all-important, brothers and sisters, first impression. This is the first impression that Jesus, the Son of God, gave to the nation of Israel and to its leaders at his very first public appearance, showing his very first encounter with Israel in public. Have you realized that, that this incident of the cleansing of the temple was Jesus' first publicity? This is kind of like what got him on the news, okay? Before this, Jesus wasn't very well known. Up to this point, he was actually unknown to the nation of Israel. His mother knew that he was something special, John the Baptist knew that he was something special. And a handful of John the Baptist's disciples, as we've already been learning about, knew that Jesus was the Messiah. But the the nation as a whole, the leaders as a whole, nobody knew who Jesus was. And it all began at this Passover in in 30 AD. Jesus' public introduction and the nation of Israel's first impression of him. For the majority of people, this was the first time they either saw Jesus or heard about him. And their introduction was either seeing or hearing a wild and passionate Galilean. This isn't Jesus meek and mild. That wasn't their first impression of Jesus. This was Jesus with the whip. And for, for them, it was not, what is Jesus doing? We know who Jesus is. I never knew he would do this. It's, who's this guy? This is Jesus. Who is Jesus? His first impression. And if you look in verse 23 of the text that we read, not only did Jesus cleanse the temple at this Passover, but he also did many miracles at this Passover. So in verse 23, he actually gained quite a bit of followers because he started to do miracles as well, probably healing miracles, maybe exorcisms. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, Nicodemus comes to Jesus. And he says in verse 2 that, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. So it's clear that at this first Passover, Jesus not only cleansed the temple, not only did miracles, but he began to teach. It was his first public introduction. But brothers and sisters, it all began, it's important that we grasp this, with the cleansing of the temple. That's how Jesus chose to present himself to Israel, what an introduction that was, and it left a lasting impression. So after this is, is in, after this encounter, even after they left, this is what people thought of Jesus, and this anticipates what's to come as well. Because do you think Jesus gave a false impression? You know, oh, that wasn't really me. You know, I know that you felt that way about me at first, and I kind of left that impression on you, but. If you just kind of hang around with me more, you'll realize that's not really how I am. It wasn't a false impression, brothers and sisters. Since this was his first introduction, since this was a beginning, as I've said many times, we should expect lots of insights and lots of of lessons to appear to us from a beginning, from an origin, from a first thing. And so this morning we're going to look at this incident and we're going to examine Jesus' first impression that he gave to the nation of Israel and look at what his lasting impression on them was. And I'd like to say this up front. This This is the main point. That this incident actually contains, whether you see it yet or not, I hope you'll see it by the end of this sermon, the gospel of Jesus Christ in miniature. It actually contains the gospel of Jesus Christ in miniature. I mean, you know what the gospel is, right? The gospel is, you know, we're all sinners, and God loves us, and God sent Christ to die for us. I'm contending this morning, I'm going to argue this morning, that this first incident contains it all in a, in a nut, in a nutshell. The elements of the gospel are here if we consider it thoughtfully And it will set the tone for the rest of the gospel, what happened here in the first Passover at Jerusalem. And I'd like to draw out those elements by considering three things. And these are the elements of the gospel. So I'd like to take these out of this incident. Number one, the sinfulness of mankind is revealed in this incident. Number two, the ministry of God's law in revealing the sinfulness of mankind is revealed in this incident. And thirdly, the solution to the problem of sin is also revealed in this first incident. So the sinfulness of mankind, the ministry of the law, and the solution to the problem in Christ. The sinfulness of mankind. Brothers and sisters, this story is crying out for us to see the sinfulness of humankind it is a testimony it is a testament to human sin now i want to ask you if you were wanting to see the sinfulness of mankind you know how do you know mankind is sinful if you were to point to some example so that we could all be morally shocked and say this shows the sinfulness of mankind look here be shocked be repulsed go crazy here it is. Where would you point? Where would you go? To what scene or to what setting would you direct our attention? If you wanted to show that mankind is sinful, would you point us to some drunken party? You want to really see the sinfulness of mankind? Look at this drunken party over here. Or look at this gang fight over here. You know all these guys that they don't work and they just do drugs and they fight each other. That's the sinfulness of mankind. Be shocked and repulsed by it. Now those are certainly true examples of the sinfulness of mankind and we should be shocked and repulsed by things like that. But the reality is is that for so many people in this world, there are scenes and there are settings that they would not go to show the sinfulness of mankind, right? They'd go to those things. They'd say, you want to see the sinfulness of mankind? Look at the parties, look at the gang fights and look only there. And there's places they would not go. I mean, you wouldn't go to... Say, General Conference down in Salt Lake City, right? And say, look at the sinfulness of mankind here. Most people would say, that's not a good specimen of the sinfulness of mankind, right? That's just people singing and trying to be good people, right? And recently we had the Parliament of World Religions in Salt Lake City too, right? People wouldn't point there. You know, if an alien came to Earth and said, what kind of people are you like? We're really sinful. Really? Can you show me? Yeah, Parliament of World Religions, right? <laughs> They'd look and say, what? This is just people. I mean, they're singing songs about being, a good, you know, being good people and everyone's one family. You wouldn't go to those. Most people wouldn't go to such places, right? But what do we find in the Bible? God himself finds and is repulsed by sin everywhere. There's no place that is quartered off, off limits, you know, sin sin is out there but not here. And in fact, in the places and with the people that this world would not go to to show the sinfulness of religion, typically uh, sinfulness of mankind, typically in religious settings and religious people, it's those places where God is most morally outraged. Isn't that interesting? What was the setting of Jesus's first impression to the nation and of his moral outrage? I mean, this is a a relatively rare incident in Jesus's life when he's, you know, violently driving people out of a setting, out of a place, right? Get out of here. You don't see Jesus doing that many many places. Actually, you only see him doing it here. And what is the setting? It's the Passover in Jerusalem. I mean, the Jewish people themselves might say, yeah, the Parliament of World Religions, that's just a bunch of paganism. But the Passover in Jerusalem, that's the holiest space, you know? That's where people are doing what they're supposed to be doing. That's where religion is being taken seriously. That's where God is being sought. That's where his law is being followed and obeyed. And Jesus comes to the Passover in Jerusalem and everything is status quo. I mean, there's no... In people's minds, everything's just happening like it's always happened. Everything's fine. And Jesus is repulsed. And what's the sin that he's so repulsed about? Is there a big drunken party going on in the temple? Right? No. In fact, it's... Probable that Jesus passed by many a drunken parties and did not run into them and kick everybody out, right? <laughs> he didn't say, drunken party, get out of here, everybody! He, he, he probably did not. Or he did not. He probably passed by them and did not do that. And we might not think it's a very big deal. So they're selling animals in the temple. Well, that's what, you're, that's what you do at the temple, right? You sacrifice animals. And it's a matter of convenience. I mean, Jesus... Do you really expect everyone to buy an animal at a distant land and bring it on a long journey and these animals are supposed to be without spot or blemish and there's so many opportunities for animals to be injured on on the road? What's wrong with selling the animals right there at the place where they're going to be sacrificed? Now Jesus is not, of course, opposed to the selling of animals at all. But He was opposed to where the selling was taking place. The fact that it was being done in the temple courts itself. If they had been selling the animals just in the valley of, you know, Kidron Valley, just outside of Jerusalem, which actually they used to do, or right on the Mount of Olives, that was fine. But when they began to bring it into the temple, in the sake of convenience, it makes so much sense, doesn't it? But this was wrong. And as Jesus says in verse 16, take these things away, stop making my father's house an emporium. That's the Greek word. An emporium, a big retail store, a Walmart. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) Don't bring business into the temple. This is not the way the temple is supposed to be, even though... What you're doing is guised as a good thing. This is supposed to be a holy place. This is a, supposed to be a place of true religion and worship of God. This is supposed to be a place of instruction for God. And you're bringing in business. And it's not the way that it should be. What we learn here, brothers and sisters, is that human beings mess everything up. Okay? <laughs> they corrupt that which is holy and that which is good. And this is the holiest thing of all. This is the holiest space of all on the earth. This is the temple courts, the place where God has his name. And human beings, under the guise of being good, are messing it up in subtle ways that most people do not normally detect and would not detect. This is what happens with religion when it gets into the hands of human beings. We continue to give off the appearance that we're, being, that we're doing everything right. We continue to give off the appearance of wisdom. We continue to give off the appearance of devotion. But in fact, when human beings take religion into their hands, they pervert it and they corrupt it because human beings are sinners and sinful. And in fact, it's the corruption of that which is good that is the worst kind of corruption of, of all. The most insidious kind of sin is this, not the drunken parties and not the gang fights. Those are bad, but this is actually worse, according to Jesus. Taking that which should be holy and corrupting it under the guise of religion. Why are human beings like that? Why do we do this? Why when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem he doesn't just find everything A-OK and just doesn't give his approbation and say, this is great, guys. I'm here to support what's going on. Why is the story this story? That when Jesus shows up in the first century and Israel is striving to keep the law and do everything right, he comes to their holiest place, he comes to their high holy festival and he drives them out of temple saying, you're doing it wrong. The simple answer is that Mankind is not a lover of God. We are not oriented towards God, but towards ourselves. We are idolaters. And our idolatry does not just manifest itself in our obvious sins, but even in our religion as well. Jeremiah 17.9 says that the heart of man is deceitful above all things. Who can understand it? And the heart, Jesus said, is the source of everything that we do. And so if that source, if that fountain is corrupt and idolatrous and deceitful and doesn't love truth and is not oriented towards God, then everything we do, drunken parties, gang fights, and even high holy festivals will be corrupted by our idolatry and our sin. And so when Jesus arrives, he finds evidence of human sinfulness in the crucial place where it shouldn't be. That's how this passage begins. Look how this passage ends. Verse 23. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. That seems like a good thing, right? Observing his signs, which he was doing. But Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men and because he did not need anyone to testify concerning man, because he himself knew what was in man. So in this story, we have this horrible example of sin and God's repulsion of it, but you also have this teaching that even when people were excited about Jesus, wow, this guy is something special, wow, he's doing miracles, wow, his teaching's great, and they start to flock to him, even then Jesus is like, I know what's in you people. This this story is a testament to the sinfulness of mankind. There's actually a play on words here. Many believed in his name, but Jesus did not, the Greek says, believe in them. So they believed in him, but he didn't believe in them. Or as Frederick Gaudet says, he had no faith in their faith. What does that mean, he had no faith in their faith? F.F. Bruce comments, Jesus made a clear distinction between those who were superficially impressed because they saw the bare signs and those who penetrated beneath the surface and grasped the truth that was signified by the signs. That is, there's a believing in Jesus that's not a true believing, brothers and sisters. You know, when I go up on campus and talk to uh, people about Christ, so many times my LDS friends will come to me and they'll say, are you saying that we're not Christians? And I'll say, yes, I Mormonism is not Christian. and You don't know Jesus. And they say, what do you mean? We believe in Jesus. Right? That's what they say. We believe in Christ. We believe in him. We preach Christ. We talk about Christ. We pray to Christ. We do everything in the name of Christ. And I want to say to them, well, haven't you read in the Bible where it says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we know you and do many wonderful works in your name? And, and he says, no, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Or that many false Christs will arise. Or Paul says, I'm afraid that you're going to be deceived into believing in a false Jesus and in a false gospel and a false... They're not thinking of that, right? They just think, hey, I believe in Jesus, so I'm a Christian, because anyone who believes in Jesus is a Christian. They don't know the scriptures. And here is a good example where people are believing in him. That is, in the light of the many miracles that he's doing, they're saying, wow, this guy's something else. This guy is from God. He may be a, he's probably a prophet. He may even be the Messiah. And they're following him and they're expecting from him and they're interested in him. But Jesus says there's something wrong with their faith. He doesn't, have faith in their faith. Something is defective here. And as Bruce said, it's because they don't really know him. They don't really understand who he is, what the signs are all about, what his mission is. And if they knew it, they would reject him. So at this point, they're just interested in his miracles. And he's, but when he starts opening his mouth, as he will later, and he starts teaching them, they need to eat his flesh and drink his blood and other things. They're out. I have my own personal experience with this. I became a Christian at 21, but before I was 21, I was extremely zealous for God, and I believed in Jesus, and I didn't even know who Jesus was. I didn't understand grace. I didn't understand my sinfulness. I didn't understand his death on the cross for me. I thought I did. I didn't. And I believe that in order for us to be saved, we had to uh, turn from all of our sins, keep the commandments. If we did that, then his atonement would cover us. And I didn't like it when people said we were just saved by grace. Didn't make sense to me. Sound crazy. Sound of, sounded like it was of the devil. And I would say, You're preaching a false Jesus when you preach that we're saved by grace. I didn't know. Was I really a Christian, even though I went to church? Even though I sang songs? Even though I prayed to Jesus in His name? Was I really a Christian? No. Because I didn't know Him. Faith in Jesus requires knowledge of Him and. We are receiving him as he is, brothers and sisters. In verse 24 and 25, we see that Jesus, the the text says that all men are like this, okay? All men. It doesn't say some, but all. That is, unless something changes in us, we are like that. We are sinful. We are idolaters. We are not oriented towards God and the truth. We are oriented towards ourselves. We will even take Jesus and twist him and make him suit our own desires. Okay. We will corrupt everything. So there can't be a stronger testimony of the sinfulness of mankind right here. Let's grasp this before we move on to the second point. All men, Jesus Christ does not entrust himself to them, for he knows what's in them. And here in the most holy place, we find moral outrage. The moral outrage of Christ. So we see the the sinfulness of humanity. Humanity is in a very bad place. Humanity is sinful. We find in this story the ministry of the law. Now, by the ministry of the law, here's what I mean. Now, as Christians, we know this. The law of God was given by God not for our justification. That is, it was not given, and God was not saying, please, guys, I beg you. You guys are all sinners and you deserve damnation, but if you keep the law then I will forgive you and accept you. So turn from what you're doing, keep the law, then you will be righteous before me and I'll save you. God did not give the law thinking this would actually save men and that this would actually be their means of righteousness and justification and life, the Bible tells us. But he gave the law, in fact, to show us our sinfulness, right? So we're all sinful, but the reality is, as human beings don't know they're sinful. They were shocked at what Jesus was doing, right? and when they when they believed in Jesus and he didn't entrust himself to them they were probably shocked at that too what's wrong with you i'm on your side human beings are notoriously ignorant of their own sinfulness we underestimate it and the law of god was given to wake us up by the cursings of the law that we might see our need that we might see our desperate state brothers and sisters god gave us the law as a mirror Many theologians say, to show us our sin and to wake us from our slumber and from our delusions. All the prophets of the Old Testament, they came to Israel sent by God as the conscience of Israel. And they stood for God against the popular tide. And they pointed to what? They pointed to God's law and they said, Look, everybody, you're guilty. They came to Israel, even though Israel thinks we're good, we're safe, we're secure, peace, peace. And the prophet says, no peace. God said, they'll be cursing if you don't obey and you're not obeying. And so the prophets came to point to the law of God, to point to God's perfect standard of righteousness, and to say, no, God actually in his law requires perfect love. None of us are doing it. We're guilty. All of our righteousness is our filthy rags and God's going to destroy us for our unrighteousness. And here we see Jesus, as we see so many times in the Gospels, functioning as a prophet. Functioning, however, as the prophet, the ultimate one who speaks for God and he's testifying of human sin. In John chapter 7, Jesus said, the world hates me because I tell them, I testify that their deeds are evil. Now Jesus wasn't unique in that, right? Isaiah and Jeremiah did that too. But Jesus served as a prophet, testifying of the sin of mankind. There hadn't been a prophet in 400 years in Israel, and then John the Baptist shows up in the wilderness preaching against the sin of Israel. But now the Son of God marches into Jerusalem, into his father's house, with the authority of one who owns the place. And he gets gets a whip. And he drives them out. When Jesus says, Stop turning my father's house into an emporium, he speaks as the authority of the Son of the Father. This is my dad's house, therefore, this is my house. Get out. He's not just a prophet in the wilderness like John the Baptist saying, Hey guys, we're all sinners. He comes into the house and says, Get out of here. Look at verse 15 notice that he made a scourge of cords and drove how many of them out of the temple? He drove all of them out. Think about that for a moment. I don't know what your image of this scene is. If you think he kind of threw over a few tables, drove off a few cattle, and then started preaching. But the text actually says he drove everybody out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. There's no way Jesus could have done this unless there was a serious whipping going on, brothers and sisters. We see a seriously aggressive side here of Jesus. Marcus Dodds comments, we cannot evacuate of forcible meaning these plain terms. It was a scene of violence, the traders trying to protect their property, cattle rushing hither and thither, men shouting and cursing, the money changers trying to hold on to their tables as Jesus went from one to another, upsetting them. Can you imagine? Imagine being a money changer, sitting at your table, and you see this guy flipping all the tables, he's coming your way. Don't you think you're going to hold on to your table? And Jesus still is flipping it, Okay. It was intense. It was a huge spectacle. What an impression that must have left. In this, we see the uniqueness of Jesus. He's really unlike any other prophet. As I said, he didn't just stand back and kind of cry out in God's name, but he came right into it and, by God's authority, kicked them out. We see his authority. We see his zeal for God as the disciples remember the scripture. Zeal for your house will consume me. This was intense. This was aggressive. This was passionate. And we also see him challenging the prevailing order of things. And all of these things, his uniqueness, his authority, his zeal for God, his challenging of the prevailing order, that is going to be true of everything else Jesus does throughout his entire ministry. You could say that the rest of his ministry is just an unpacking of this same uniqueness, authority, zeal, and challenging of the prevailing order. However, it's so important that we see, and this is the point of this second section, that although this was a serious whipping, and that's what I want to draw our attention to the fact this was no little whipping. He kicked them all out. It was nevertheless a whipping that was motivated by the love of God and love for these people. Jesus was not always mild, as we can see, but he wasn't always like this either. He wasn't always whipping people. He was compassionate, he was tender, and he wasn't uh, bipolar. (laughs) He's always compassionate when he's whipping Because Jesus could have gripped a fiery sword, right? And he could have killed them all. He could have done a Samson on them and just stood there and killed a thousand of them, right? But it was not his intent to kill but to correct. He did not come to to condemn or destroy but to save life. And part of his saving mission is preaching against God the sinfulness of man, that they might see their sin and turn to him. Augustine, I think, aptly puts it, he who was to be scourged by them first scourged them. Okay? They're going to whip him later. If he didn't want them to whip him later, he would have probably just killed them all right then. His scourging was to correct them, to teach them, to discipline them in love. And later they would scourge him and put him to death, something he didn't do to them. Brothers and sisters, God gives the law and sends the prophets to show us our sin because he loves us. He doesn't just leave us in our pride and hubris and ignorance. He sends us preachers early, he tells us. He sends us voices in the wilderness. He sends us alarms. He sends us cursings. He sends us his own son with a whip in his hand to rouse us and to shake us out of our delusions that we might see our predicament and be saved. Those with eyes to see will be shocked. So, you know, they're just coasting along, status quo, everything's fine, we're all doing the religious thing, it's great. And then they see Jesus morally outraged, whip everybody out of the house, and those with eyes to see will, be, will also say, whoa, there must be something wrong with us, right? And those without eyes to see will say, whoa, there must be something wrong with him, right? What does this teach you? That something's wrong with us and human beings and how we do religion, or something's wrong with Jesus. He's a nutcase. Unfortunately, most people in the world will side with the leaders of Israel who thought Jesus was crazy. We see that Jesus sowed the seeds for his own death here. Right at the beginning, public introduction, what he did sowed the seeds for his own death because the leaders of Israel didn't have eyes to see this this story doesn't only leave an impression of what to expect from Jesus but what to expect from the establishment as well by their response to Jesus and it's truly amazing that the most religious people in the world the people who should be guides to those who are in darkness the people who had the most knowledge of God and his word that they hated Jesus because he was zealous for God isn't that amazing Why did Jesus do this? Because he loved truth, because he loved God, because he loved God's house and everything it represented, because he was zealous for God's word, for God's name, for God's righteousness, and they hated him for it. So let us recognize in this story, not only our human sinfulness, but God's love in giving us the law, the prophets, Jesus, the apostles, and even his discipline and chastisement of us in our own day to show us our need for him and our, tr- and our true state. Let us recognize in this story the ministry of the law. And this brings us to my last point this morning, brothers and sisters, and that is that this story also gives us the solution to the dilemma and to the problem in Jesus Christ. All the elements of the gospel are here. Now look at verse 18 with me. This is what the Jews say to him. And there's what they how they respond to him is very insightful. What sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? Now it's interesting that they obviously recognize Jesus wasn't mentally ill, right? If someone was just mentally ill, thrashing around in the temple, they wouldn't have asked him this. They probably just would have grabbed him and shipped him to a hospital or something. They recognized he had authority, the way that he carried himself, the word that he spoke. He wasn't crazy. He wasn't a troublemaker. He was there speaking God's word, and they didn't like what he was doing, but the only thing they could say is, okay... You come to us with authority. What authority do you have? Give us a sign that we may know what authority you have. They had no idea who they were dealing with. F.F. Bruce says, What sign could have been more eloquent than that which they had just witnessed? (laughs) He just (laughs) demonstrated his authority, demonstrated his zeal for God. Even fulfilling scripture by doing this. But they don't see it, so they ask him for a sign. And the amazing thing is, Jesus actually gives them a sign. Jesus actually they say, What sign do you have? And he says, Here's a sign. You know? And what a sign he gives, what a sign he gives them and us, by the way. This is not just a sign for them, this is a sign for all people, including us. Destroy, verse 19, this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. Now, what were they to do with that that reply? Give us a sign. All right. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I'll raise it again. Now, imagine what they heard when he said that. They didn't know he was talking about himself, right? From their perspective, it was, destroy the temple. Well, it's a legitimate challenge. I mean, take out the temple and i'll raise it up again but they're not going to obviously do that right they're not going to put him to the test so in their mind they're probably thinking oh it was a dodge it was an idol it was a cat it was one of those trick answers you know i'll give you a sign take out the temple and i'll build it again well we're not going to do that so okay you'll never know a dodge tricky jesus very tricky you got out of it <laughs> But Jesus was intentionally obscure. He's okay with people misunderstanding him if they're not really willing, if they're already blind and they don't have eyes to see. If they're going to misunderstand him and not inquire and not learn and not humble themselves before him, he's okay with being misunderstood. But he gave us a sign that at the time was obscure, now it is crystal clear what he meant. And this statement would later prove him to be authoritative. He was not referring to the temple building. He was referring to his body. I'd like us to notice three fascinating things about this reply in verse 19. Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Number one, at this early stage in Jesus' ministry, this is his very first public introduction to the nation. Jesus prophesies of his death and his resurrection. Right at the beginning, right in the first encounter, he says says to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will build it. And referring to his body, he's thinking about and speaking about his death and his resurrection. Friends, the death and resurrection of Jesus was constantly on his mind. He was consumed with it. You poked Jesus and he talked about it. Okay? This was the purpose of his coming. There's no plan B. And I want you to notice how John in his gospel has been drawing this out and emphasizing that the death and resurrection of Jesus is the main thing. John the Baptist... Chapter 1, verse 29, his chief testimony of Jesus is what? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right away, John is testifying of his death. Then in chapter 2, verse 4, as we saw last week, Mary comes to Jesus and says, we have a major crisis. They ran out of wine. And Jesus says, my hour hasn't come to solve the major crisis. Right? And what is he thinking when he's saying his hour? His death the crisis he came into the world to solve, the real crisis of mankind, the sinfulness of mankind. And again, it's on Jesus' mind so much that when Mary comes to him at the wedding for a mundane thing, he's thinking of his real purpose for coming, his real crisis-solving deliverance. So chapter 2, verse 4, his hour, he speaks of his death. And then here again in 219, he speaks of his death. It is totally central, and we have to see this. And what's interesting, if you consider the centrality of the death of Christ in these initial chapters, and as we're gonna see as we go on, and you compare it to the prologue of the Gospel of John, chapter one, verse one through eighteen. And you'll remember the prologue is setting the stage for the entire gospel, introducing us to all its all of its major themes it might be surprising that the prologue never once mentions the death of Christ explicitly. Isn't that interesting? The death of Christ is central throughout the Gospel of John, but the prologue doesn't mention the death of Christ explicitly. So how then can I say that the prologue sets the stage and gives all the themes for the Gospel? The prologue, of course, talks about his rejection, but that doesn't necessarily imply his death, or it doesn't explicitly speak of his death. But what the prologue does speak of, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus Christ put on flesh to reveal the Father to us and to reveal the glory of God. And John says we saw his glory when Jesus put on flesh and we hung out with him and we heard him and we heard him and saw him and touched him. We saw his glory full of grace and truth. If I could describe Jesus... He was full of grace and truth. And what do we see then when we look at Jesus, hear Jesus, touch Jesus throughout the rest of the Gospel of John? We see the centrality of his death. And when you connect this with the prologue, what you see is that it is in his death and his resurrection that we have the revelation of the Father, and in his death and resurrection that we have the revelation of God's glory, full of grace and truth. Jesus was full of grace and truth. Okay, let, I'm excited to see what he's going to have to say. All he talks about is his death. That's because he's full of grace and truth. So the first thing that is fascinating in this reply is Jesus' is, his mind is filled with his death even at this early stage. Second of all, here's another fascinating thing about his reply. Notice that Jesus commands things them to destroy him. Do you notice that? He doesn't just say, I'll show you a sign. If you destroy me, when you destroy me, I will raise it up in three days. He tells them, destroy this temple. He tells them to destroy him. Isn't that interesting? What that tells us is that the death of Jesus was not an accident or a surprise or an ambush. He wasn't doing his ministry and they ambushed him and got him and that right from the beginning, Jesus knows he's going to die. That's the purpose of his coming. In fact, in chapter 10, he says this, the father loves me because I laid down my life so that I might take it up again. Nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord and I take it up of my own accord. Nobody takes my life from me. He's not being ambushed or surprised. He's coming in and at this stage, they're probably, the seeds of his death are sown, but they're probably not consciously thinking of killing him. And yet he's inviting the suggestion. He says, kill me, kill me, and I will raise this again. I know you're going to kill me in the future. But there's no surprise, he came to die. It's fascinating that he says it that way. And then the third fascinating thing in this reply is that Jesus compares his body to the temple. In fact, he says that his body is the temple. He doesn't just say it's comparable. And it's fascinating. He's standing in the temple court. The temple is there in their eyesight. And he says, destroy this temple. And he's referring not to that temple that everyone might assume he's talking about, but he's referring to his own body. The temple of God, the building in Jerusalem, was a shadow of which God, Christ Jesus himself was the substance, right? I am the temple is what he's saying. You think you know what the temple is, but you don't. I am the temple. And what is the temple? What did that building represent? What did that building shadow and symbolize? It was the place of God's revelation, God gave the tabernacle which later became the temple to teach mankind about themselves and about himself and about how human beings who are sinful and God who is holy, set apart from sinners and righteous could be reconciled and relate and have relationship together. So the temple is a place of instruction and revelation in who man is, who God is, what the truth is, and it's also the place of reconciliation with God. And what Jesus is saying is that temple building is but the shadow. I am the true place of revelation. I am the true place of reconciliation with God. Me, my body, in my death and in my resurrection. That's a truly amazing thing if you think about it, if we meditate upon that. The temple tells us God is holy and righteous. You can't just waltz into the temple, can you? Why not? Why couldn't a person just say, okay, I know God said his name in that particular place um, and manifested his presence there. I just want to go hang out with God today. God and me are buddies, I'm just going to march right up there. I don't need to bring an animal sacrifice or anything. I'll just go talk. God's friendly, nice, thinks I'm good. The temple basically is a slap in the face to all that kind of thinking. The temple says actually, no, you cannot just waltz up to God. God will not have you, God does not deem you acceptable. In fact, if you were to march up to God without any sacrifice or in the appropriate way, you'd die. God would kill you. Why? Because you are sinful, evil, worthy of death, and that's what you would deserve. God is holy, pure, and righteous. And so something has to be done in order for you to approach God. And the temple shows what that is. That is... God and man can be reconciled through a bloody sacrifice. That's how God and man can be reconciled. And you might say, well, how does that work? Well, the sacrifice symbolizes this, that your sins, which deserve death, can be put upon another. And another can bear your sins, take your place, pay the penalty, satisfy the justice and the wrath of God against you, So that through this bloody sacrifice, you can have an approach to God and you can be pure and blameless before him and thus relate. Sin is born by another. And brothers and sisters, the temple is gone, the building. But nothing has changed one iota from those days. Do you reckon with that fact I mean, maybe in those days you think, okay, the temple's there, you can't approach God, but it's gone now, so things are easier, things are laxer. No, it's exactly the same because God is the same and human beings are the same. We are just as sinful today as we've always been. God is just as righteous and exacting as he's always been. And the solution is the same, bloody sacrifice. Only the shadow has given way to the substance who is Jesus Christ. And in his death at the cross, we have the ultimate revelation of sin, the ultimate revelation of God's righteousness, and the ultimate revelation of God's good news and grace, that he loves sinners and that he welcomes us and that he saves us by his amazing gift. And sacrifice. It's an amazing thing. When you see the cross, do you see the revelation that the temple only shadowed, shadowed and predicted in a shadowy way? When you look at the cross, do you see, I can't approach God unless the Son of God dies for me? Do you see the righteousness and holy and exacting standard of God when you look at the cross? And do you see the amazing love of God when you look at the cross, that he would do that for you because he loves you and he doesn't want you to be destroyed? And what is our response to this? What is our response to this, that Jesus came into the world to die for us, to bear our sins, to be the substance that the temple only shadowed, to lay down his life for us, that we might not die, but that we might have new life in his life? Well, the disciples show us what the response is. And it says, in the, When he rose... Then they understood, and what did they do? Then they believed. And John concludes his gospel by saying, all of the things I've written, I've written so that you might believe in the name of the Son of God, and by believing, have life in his name. And as I've already mentioned, there's different kinds of believing in Jesus, right? As Christians, we are not just believing that Jesus is an awesome miracle worker. We're understanding who he is. We understand that he came into the world to save us because we could not be saved otherwise, and that it's through his death for us that we're saved, and it's, it's by faith that we're saved and not by keeping of the law that we're saved. By simply believing, brothers and sisters, your sins are forgiven. If you're a Christian, you are blameless and you have peace with God and you have access to God. You can get up in the morning tomorrow... You can go to bed at night tonight and you can rest your head on the pillow in having peace with God even though you had a sinful day because Jesus Christ died for your sins and satisfied the justice of God and there is peace in his blood. Praise the Lord for what Jesus has done for us. Amen. First impressions are powerful things. And here we have the nation of Israel's and the world's introduction to Jesus. He left an impression that lasted, that has lasted for a very long time. When you think of Jesus, do not think just gentle Jesus, meek and mild, you know, Jesus is not someone you should be worried about or scared about, or Jesus is not someone who would give you a hard time. When you think of Jesus, think, well, Jesus, the first thing he showed us when he showed up publicly was his zeal for God, his zeal for truth. And he testified and was outraged by man's sinfulness. That's an impression of Jesus we need to remember but he also left us with the impression that he was disciplining us because he loved us, wanting us to see the truth, and that he came to die for us, to save us. The elements of the gospel are all here. It's the gospel in miniature. May we have eyes to see. If there's anyone that does not yet believe in Jesus with understanding, May this be the day that they see and understand who he is. May we see his love and love God in response for his love for us. And may we too have zeal for God's truth in our own world. Here's also a challenge for us as as Christians. As we now face the world, let's not be impressed by the religions of the world. Let's not be impressed by world religion parliament in Salt Lake City. Let's not be impressed. Let's understand Mankind is sinful. God gave his law to show us that and the solution is in none other but Jesus Christ In him crucified. Let's pray. Please stand with me. Mm-mm. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the truth that is revealed in this incident that we just read, impress it upon our hearts, and may it not leave us. May we not forget. Keep it before our eyes, Lord, I pray. The sinfulness of mankind the insidious sinfulness of mankind that corrupts everything. Your perfect righteousness and your beautiful provision for our salvation in Jesus Christ. Lord, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for your son. We love you for what you have done for us. And really, no words can express all these things, Father. So again, I ask that by your Holy Spirit, work in our hearts, impress these things in us. Expand our vision of who you are. And Father, also use us, I pray, your people in this world to be bright lights, shining truth, even if we're hated, and pointing away from ourselves to your Son, Jesus Christ, his glory, his work, his victory and the life that we can have in him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.